0: Hey there, everybody. My name is Max Gomez, and while I am not here to bring you another episode of Misinformed, I am here to introduce a very exciting special episode that is coming to us uh, from our very own career and academic advisor, Scott Webb, who reached out to me in November to see if I could trim up and help produce an episode for Misradio out of the panel conversation he held during NASPA's career fair week back in October 2021. Uh, It's obviously January now, so uh, sorry Scott, thanks for your patience on that. I'm really glad to have had this opportunity to jump in and listen to this conversation that I I didn't get the chance to back in October because uh, it really was very interesting to listen to. I learned a lot, uh, and I hope you all, whoever that may be, uh, do as well. Uh, Scott certainly does a much better job than I could at introducing who's there for the panel and and what they're there to talk about, so without any further ado, uh, I hope you enjoy. Uh, My name is Scott Webb. This is the NASCA International Development Panel. This is the the fourth and final event of the DC Career Virtual Trek Week. Uh, We've had some great events this week. So My name is Scott Webb. I'm I'm here in Monterey, California. I'm a career and academic advisor with the Middlebury Institute for International Studies in Monterey. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague, Colleen Bremner. She's Associate Director for uh, Recruiting here at the Middlebury Institute. Uh, She's based in Washington, DC as well. We've got our panelists today. I've got Kate Warren from DevEx and Burke Fishburne from the Posner Center. I'll introduce them in a second. Uh, So as I said, this is the fourth and final event of the NASPA DC Virtual Trek. Thanks to my colleagues at other NASPA partner schools for their events. This week we've held panels and heard from the US Government Accountability Office, uh, think tanks, including Brookings, Center for Strategic and International Studies and AIR. Yesterday we had a great event with the Department of Homeland Security. And finally today we've got this panel on international development. So I'm I'm really excited to talk with my colleagues today. Uh, I graduated with my master of public administration from the Middlebury Institute in December 2007. At that time, I was in a heavy job searching mode. I was applying everywhere. I was using I was updating my LinkedIn and especially my account with DevX. Uh, for those of you that might not know, DevX is you know really the premier portal for international development, um, at least in the United States and and you know many other places around the world. But I'll let Kate explain DevX. So in January, 2008, I got a call from a DevX recruiter uh, asking if I was interested in being shortlisted for a recruiter position with IRD, which in 2008, at that time, it was one of the biggest USAID implementing partners um, with over a billion dollars in programs around the world, mostly in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, They have since rebranded as Bluemont. But uh, while I wasn't as interested in recruiting, I said, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, shortlist me, That's why not? (laughs) Uh, So, but within a week, I had an interview and in my interview was Kate Warren, uh, who uh, we'll be talking to today. So she was recruiting for IRD at the time. Um, I ended up taking the job and that's what launched my career in international development. Kate and I only worked together for a few months at IRD before she left her job to work at DevX, where she is now. Uh, It's been like 14 years. Uh, So, yeah, I wanted to put that out there. I'm a forever fan of DevX, and I'm always happy to show my students how useful their services are for career development, business intelligence, and now especially news about international development. So with that, I want to introduce my first panelist, basically. Uh, I'll introduce Kate. Um, actually, I'll, I'll, inter- I'll introduce you both first, <laughs> and then we'll move, move on from there. So Kate brings two decades of global development and digital media experience covering and shaping the important conversations driving the sustainable development goals. In her role as executive vice president and executive editor, Kate leads DevX's special coverage, including news events, DevX Pro, and other editorial initiatives tied to key moments on the global development calendar. She's a frequent speaker and author on human capital, leadership, skills development, and trends in the social compact and global development space, as well as LGBTQ youth rights. Before joining DevX in 2008, Kate worked on programs in Afghanistan, Indonesia, Colombia, Kenya, and beyond for an international NGO. IRD, <laughs> and a global development consulting firm implementing USAID-funded rule of law, infrastructure, civil society, and institutional strengthening and monitoring and evaluation projects. And yes, she was a DEVX member. She's a native Texan. She speaks Spanish and studied Latin American studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She's lived in Argentina, Costa Rica, and Mexico, and has experience in over 30 countries. Uh, when she isn't planning the next DEVX editorial initiative or speaking at Uh, international conferences, you can find her alongside her husband shuttling their two kids around Washington, D.C. We're also joined um, by Burke Fishburne. Um, Here is his info. As the executive director of the Posner Center, Burke leads uh, the Posner Center community in making Denver and Colorado an international hub and leader of collaborative global development. Prior to uh, directing the Posner Center, Burke founded and managed a series of consulting firms devoted to global public health. He brings a wealth of global public health management and overseas development experience to their organization. His professional life started as a shipboard U.S. naval officer. From there, he began a public health career, first managing the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services legislative program, transitioned to advising on food and drug safety policy, and then building a policy and evaluation team in the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's Office on Smoking and Health. In 2001, Burke made the move to global public health, first as a CDC technical officer on loan to the WHO in Vietnam and other countries, and later as a WHO regional coordinator for the Tobacco Free Initiative responsible for anti-smoking activities in over 20 countries. He has a master of public policy from Georgetown and did his bachelor's at Villanova. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Kate, I wanna start with you. Tell us about your work, your career, where you've been coming from and, and what you're doing at DevX now.
1: Yeah, well, thank you, Scott, for inviting. I'm really happy to see all of you joining from all over the place. Um, this is the beauty of our new Zoom world, right? Um, so, thank you for inviting. me. And yeah, as Scott said, we've known each other for quite some time now, and it's been always been great to collaborate with you. Um, yeah, so I, you know, got started working, and I think in some very traditional international development jobs, at least. Particularly in the early 2000s in DC, which was you know backstopping USAID-funded projects for an NGO and for a consulting firm, um, with commonly referred to as implementers or USAID implementers, so that are usually the ones you know on the ground actually delivering on projects and programs. And those kind of roles are often um, kind of getting involved in a lot of different areas of project management, everything from maybe writing proposals to doing recruitment for that project to um, you know, financial and budgeting oversight and a lot of coordination. Um, and I found that I really did like the recruitment side of it. And then I joined uh, IRD, where I focused on that, particularly within our business development unit. Um, you know, we actually hired DevX to help us as we were doing a search. It was a really busy time. We were doing a lot of hiring. This is when uh, there was just a lot of funding going into Afghanistan and Iraq. And it's just like couldn't hire fast enough um, to work on some of those programs. Um, and yeah, that's how I, I met Scott. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I left DevEx. Um, and I think this is a, maybe a common career story where, you know, the, the reason I left is I had known DevEx through my work at IRD. So when they were looking to hire this position, they approached me to see if I would be interested. Um so as you know, a lot of that's how a lot of jobs happen. Um Definitely people apply to jobs online, but a lot of it is through networks and and people you know, Um, and I joined them to really focus on building out the career recruitment side of what DevX does. Um, It has definitely evolved since then, and it's been, yes, uh, almost 14 years, which is kind of crazy to think about, Um, but at DevX, for those of you who aren't familiar with us, we really are a media platform for the global development community, and we really serve as a connection point for anyone who's working in this space in a variety of ways. So we do have a job board where there are hundreds of organizations that post their opportunities and it can be a, you know, home office position in DC to a consulting job that may be in um, a program country. The opportunities really are, are global and pretty diverse. So I encourage you to be checking that out if you haven't already and, you know, can sign up for customized alerts and, and such for jobs that you're interested in. We also have very robust career advice offering um, through our content. So we have a a career newsletter comes out every Friday, uh, DevX Career Hub, where we curate a lot of that might be CV advice or interviews with heads of HR or recruitment leads from big organizations. Um, A lot of advice looking at the trends that are happening in the sector and breaking it down of what, what does that mean for somebody who might be looking to break in or advancing their career. And we do a lot of events and programming around that as well. Um, So I got involved in a lot of that editorial side through our career lens. And then in recent years, that's actually evolved to working on our editorial side more broadly and our events more broadly. So, um, you know, we're hosting a big event next week around the future of development finance, which is a real growing area. And I know we'll be talking a little bit about the different kinds of jobs and such and, happy to talk about some of the, the newer areas we see in development. Um, then we'll be at the climate conference COP the following week. So we are covering that as well. We also track funding um, and you produce a lot of news around what's happening in the global development space, really targeting professionals and making sure they're getting access to the information that'll help them do their jobs better so whether it's how to write the cv to get the job or talking about what's really happening you know on the ground maybe uh, we just did a big feature on on haiti and the food insecurity challenges there we had a reporter on the ground who put together a really beautiful visual story talking about some of the supply chain challenges there so we, we you know we cover quite a bit in helping international development professionals um you know do good and do it well, as our slogan says. Um, And so, yeah, I'll, I'll pause there, but I'm happy to talk about, um, you know, kind of the hat I've worn as from a recruitment and career side to also the hat on, on looking at international development issues more broadly.
0: That's great. Thanks. uh, Thanks, Kate. That's, that's great. Uh, Burke, I want to turn to you. I, um, you know, we, we haven't really had a chance to talk too much uh, in the past, but, you know, it's great to meet you. It's, and one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you is because one of the things I've tried to do with my students in particular is introduce them to this broad range of international development options that are out there. And a lot of people get obsessed with D.C., um, and I know this week is supposed to be the D.C. Career Virtual Trek. But um, I'm, I was excited to involve you because, um, you know, there's, there's more to international development um, than just Washington, the Washington DC based space. And from where you're coming from, you know, in Denver, uh, I was just, you know, I was curious to hear, uh, what you're up to. And I know the Posner center is involved in a lot of different grassroots work that's going on. So I'd love, I'd love to hear f- from you about, you know, what you're doing at the Posner center and what brought you, uh, what brought you there and, and, and how the work is. Thanks Scott. What a start. Uh, maybe I'll start with the Posner center. So,
2: um, the Posner Center where I've been uh, for the past four years is a community of about 200 global and local development organizations, um, not all based in Denver. And we run a, a collaborative workspace. So we have a, a building in the historic part of Denver. Um, but we are very much a virtual community and we have very much been on a track of kind of redefining what we mean by global development uh, And the way that we talk about global development is work at home and abroad. Um, so we are having more local development organizations involved in our community. And one kind of wake up call to that was our work in what we call decolonizing development. Um, And in fact, we have a symposium, a three week symposium, all virtual starting next week, uh, that's focused on decolonizing development. And when we were looking at this issue, we were finding that these are issues, colonial structures, the desire to shift power, diversify global development. These are all issues that resonate at the local level. And we have a lot to learn from people working at on the local development level. So I think one of the questions that the the three of us, Kate, Scott and I had had, uh, talked about is how you define international development. And I was having a struggle because um, I'm a public health guy. And if you ask public health people, what's public health? And they will answer, well, everything's public health. Um, And I kind of think about international development the same way. I think everything is international development. If you are trying to address, um, you know, maybe root cause poverty issues, uh, social, economic, otherwise, it's all development work. And it doesn't matter where you're doing this work uh, globally in another country or at home. Um, So how I came to do this, um, I have had a very accidental career. So those of you who are out there that don't know what you wanna do when you grow up, well, I still don't know what I wanna do when I grow up. I just keep raising my hand to new and and fun and interesting things. I did not have a desire to do international development work or go into global public health. It just kind of happened. I was an odd duck. I I studied philosophy as an undergraduate, was a naval officer by accident, got out of the Navy, thought I wanted to go back and get my doctorate in philosophy and go teach philosophy and talk about the French existentialists uh, for the rest of my life. And what I found out was uh, the program I was in was I was very much more interested in public policy and public administration issues because that's where the work was getting done. Um, So I was in D.C. at the time, uh, I switched over to a a brand new program uh, at Georgetown, a brand new public policy program, and that kind of started my path there. And then along the way, I just kept raising my hand uh, for for new and interesting things, and that's how I wound up uh, going to work for CDC and WHO and eventually came back here um, to consult uh, still in the global public health field. And after getting tired of traveling uh, constantly for almost a decade, I decided to, to take this job uh, with the Posner Center uh, here in Denver.
0: So maybe I'll stop there and, and let us get on with the, the conversation. That's great, thanks. So I, I've gone through an evolution in my career development where you know I did Peace Corps at the end of the 90s. At that time, And and even still today, to a large extent, you have this like USAID driven, uh, you know, both USAID funding, you know, $20 billion worth of things around the world. You've got, you know, the UN system, which is funding, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of things around the world. And it seemed realistic 20 years ago to think, oh, you know, I could have this interesting expat career where I go and I just go live and raise my family in you know West Africa and and have these expat based jobs where I'm doing this really cool and interesting work. But then you start to see, you know, with sustainable development issues and things like that, and then the decolonization of aid and this sort of you know mental model of how development works, you have to really think about geez, this is a very colonial system. I need to revisit how I think I should have my role and, and how I should evolve. And so I wanted to ask I want to ask you, Burke, in particular about, you know, the, the decolonization of aid. How are you seeing how, you know, most of the people that are, you know, on this call are, you know, based in American schools. Many of them are, and, you know, many of them are, you know, U.S. citizens sitting here and want to make a difference in international development. How can someone based in the United States make a true difference in helping vulnerable people in affected communities around the world? with an eye towards doing it in a sustainable and respectful way? Uh, so, so a very easy question. <laughs> I, I guess I will answer
2: by saying, with respect to the issue of decolonizing development, individuals and organizations are gonna start their journey at different points. Um, some are ready to do it, some are have experienced colonial structures where they are, where they work, organizations that they work for, others, this is a completely brand new, brand new topic. Um, there's so much that's bound up in, in this issue. Um, issues of equity, diversity, uh, inclusion, and certainly justice. Um, and you can probably drive yourself nuts tr- uh, thinking that you can, you know, uh, unless you're the leader of an organization, uh, make a huge difference. But I would say, you know, for people who starting are starting out in their, their international development careers, look for organizations that are talking about this issue and taking it seriously and wanting to do something and not being performative in their work. Um, because this is a real issue and At least for me and at least for for my organization, this is um, a decades-long commitment to really shifting power and shifting money and shifting the way we do development work in a way that's been happening for hundreds of years. Um, And we're not going to do it overnight. So hopefully I answer your questions, Scott.
0: No, oh, that's great. Thanks for that. Uh, Kate, I wanted to hear your take on this um, in particular, you know, because you're sort of sitting at this nexus, you know, with DevX, knowing so much about the industry and the shifts and things like that. I mean, the fact is that USAID still funds $21 billion, you know, worth of things around the world. And there's huge contractors and, you know, nonprofit and for-profit companies that have to do these projects that are implemented and they still need tons of staff. But how, yeah, how, do, how, do you, how can you navigate this as a young professional these days?
1: Yeah, well, I think Burke's point about power and funding is really important. And there still is a role in helping to shift that power and funding. Um, Whether we like it or not, that comes from the global north and the current way of our structures. And it's hard to imagine, particularly from the funding side, that that's going to be shifting. Um, You know, the countries with the resources are the ones. And it's really about how you can get that funding and shift that power to local decision makers who are going to know their challenges, opportunities much better than somebody flying in or parachuting in um, from outside another community. So, you know, I think it's about finding that role where you, there are a lot of jobs and positions and organizations that are doing that and thinking about their role. And if you are sitting in the US or DC, you have proximity to that power and funding. So thinking about how you can play a role in distributing that. Um, And so working with the USAID, we actually just did a career event with them this week. You know, they often talk a lot about, you know, localization is their term of of shifting more power and resources to local organizations, not so much relying on the big international NGOs that tend to hire a lot of Americans. Um, A lot of those international NGOs are now, you know, used to be you know, back when we were doing projects, Scott, where you know you'd have a chief of party, and the whole project leadership would be mostly American, and they'd be brought in, maybe have never even worked in the country before, and they're paid big American salaries, and their kids go to private school, um, and then meanwhile, local hire. There's a lot of disparity in that, um, but that has, has shifted a lot, and now that chief of party um, ideally is somebody who's locally from that community. So as far as career opportunities and thinking about like an expat lifestyle, those will still exist and particularly international organizations like the UN and the World Bank and USAID, those positions and opportunities will be there, but those roles will be shifting and more focused on how do you facilitate access to power and funding for local communities. Um, I think you have to think a lot about what unique value are you bringing in, which requires a lot of humility, right? So why should an organization fly you into this country that maybe you don't have any personal experience in, maybe pay you many multiples to do something that like that somebody in country couldn't do. Um, and you're wanting to do good, um, is not reason enough to do that. Right. Um, even if the intentions are good. Um, So I think there's been a lot of reckoning and self-examination of people who work in this sector, who enter this sector because they are well-meaning, they want to make a difference and thinking about how maybe they've been complicit in this uh, system of inequity. And so, you know, you can kind of spin yourself crazy thinking about this too. Um, So, you know, but I think it's important to have that and, and thinking about, Like, what is the unique value that I'm providing that nobody else could um, and really focusing there? And it might take some time before you get to that point in your career. Um, But yeah, I mean, these are, it's not going to change overnight, but these are shifts that are happening a lot. Um, I think the pandemic has certainly accelerated that. Um, Organizations that maybe before said, oh, well, we can't find the local capacity capacity They had to, right? Because they couldn't fly in their teams from overseas. Um, And they found actually uh, things worked pretty okay. Um, There are more remote opportunities available that's opening up even access to who could work for a US-based NGO. If you could hire someone remotely to run a project, why hire somebody in DC? If you could hire somebody in Nairobi who's a a Kenyan. So there's a lot of shifts that are not just in development, but um, are happening that are kind of changing how positions are determined and where they're placed. Um, but I, you know, I think there's still lots of different opportunities. And I, yeah, I think Burke's point about how do you define development? That is something we talk about a lot. And we've been thinking about how we describe DevX. You know, we, we work with a lot of corporates and tech companies that are doing development work. They might use very different language and terminology and we have yet to find what that common term is social impact or sometimes the SDGs can be something that resonate you know have to shift our language depending on the audience we're talking to but there's a lot of different ways to have a social impact and development that is also not in what I would say is a traditional career path for a you know USAID funded NGO.
0: Yeah Burke did you have anything else you wanted to add to that?
2: maybe just to make it a little bit more concrete i kate is exactly right we over the the decades we have this idealized notion of a career in international development right and i think that's getting blown up and uh you all are going to be part of that generation that's going to blow it up and help us um improve global development work um so coming back to Scott's original question is, I think you all have a role in helping us to blow it up because I'm very much part of that that old school where I was a tobacco control expert. I got helicoptered into Vietnam with the assumption that countries like Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Malaysia had no idea what they're doing in anti-smoking. And I was gonna go in and, and fix everything, which was so far from the truth. Um, and a very humbling experience uh, to learn that you know I wasn't the expert, and I was there to facilitate and help. Uh, and that that did not happen over that mindset didn't change overnight. That happened over a course of you know five or six years. And you don't have to make the same mistakes that I made. So you're you're going to be part of that new generation.
0: That's great. You know, along these lines, um, Kate, you were starting to sort of allude to you know the kinds of things. Like, like finding your lane, finding your role, finding the things that you're skilled at. DevX has done some great reports on like the future of development and things like that. My take on it is that the future is basically um, very adaptable generalists, but maybe you could, you know, talk about that a little bit. Like, you know, what are the kinds of skills that uh, aspiring international development professionals can can get, like common skills and technical skills?
1: Yeah, no, it's a good question. You know, I think traditionally there's often been kind of Two career paths: one that's more of a real technical kind of expert, and one that's more generalist program management. And um, yeah, I think there's still room for both. But no matter kind of where you fall, um, a lot of that cross-cultural, those soft skills is is so critical to the work that we're doing. Um, when you think about, uh, you know, some of the hard skills that are really in demand, and there's a lot of data, obviously having much more data-driven decisions and people who understand data and how to measure it and what's important. That is, you know, probably the most uh, often requested skill set that also is very much lacking in a lot of organizations. So when we talk about where you can provide unique value, that's often a a hole that is being needed to to fill. So I was like thinking about hard skills to develop, but it's also then knowing how to use that and how to communicate and how to collaborate. I mean, these problems and of <laughs> inequity across the world are not simple solutions, right? They require actors from all parts. If uh, you look at the SDGs, the whole point of them is that these are challenges we need to bring everyone, public sector, private sector, civil society together, and so, and in particularly thinking about as an American, the role that you can play is I think through a lot of that partnership and bringing those groups together. Um, and so those do require a little bit more soft skills and thinking about, um, you know, partnership and collaboration, being able to, you don't have to be the expert in everything, but knowing what expertise you're lacking and bringing that in to really think of sustainable cross-sectoral solutions. There's um, development has often been very siloed. And a lot of that is a result of how the funding um, is put out there, but more and more, there's a lot of uh, desire to break down those silos. I mean, look at climate, right? Climate is impacts every facet of development. (laughs) Um, And of course that is a a good thing to be um, looking at too, as organizations are more and more thinking about climate as just this cross-cutting theme that needs to be factored into all of their work, whether it's on health or, or ag or infrastructure or whatever it may be. Um, so it's, you know, looking at how you can bring all these together and it's a quickly adapting world. So the ability to learn new skills and be adaptable, I think is probably most important because what you're learning today is great, but in five years, um, it could be something different that you need to know. So having that growth mindset too, is uh, I know very valuable to many of the organizations that are hiring.
0: That's great. That's, that's, that's really good to know. Um, there was a technical question that someone chatted me about, um, about monitoring and evaluation skills. That's a little bit in the weeds, but um, what, what it brings up is that um, you're saying like data and analytics is, is highly important. I mean, would you say that like there are, are commonalities across a lot of the positions that you see in particular for people that are, you know, kind of entering the, you know, the program officer role that, you know, an yeah, entry level so. postgraduate position. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So definitely. And, the monitoring evaluation is really important. I mean, being able to show impact is increasingly, um, necessary and, and using, um, monitoring of that to make decisions. So you can specialize in this for sure, but it's also a good skill for anyone who want to work in an area to have um, as it's becoming more and more kind of not a must have, but a very nice to have. Um, so, you know, you can have a career focused on monitoring evaluation and learning, uh, but having some of those basics and fundamentals is really, I think, important to anyone. Looking to work in this space. Um, And of course, data is is a big part of that.
0: Okay. Yeah. I I wanted to talk a little bit about money and funding uh, in international development because that drives so much of of what can be done. Um, You know, there's, like I was saying, there's $21 billion of USAID money out there, you know, for the taking annually, taking, but, you know, for so there's every time a solicitation comes out you know, a dozen NGOs get together and have a cage match to write proposals, uh, you know, and there's a lot of effort put into this. Um, on the other side of more grassroots organizations, and this is something I wanted to ask Burke about a little, a little bit actually, is um, the funding situation. Um, in particular, Burke, for, for, your, for your ecosystem, you know, around the Posner Center, like where, where do these grassroots organizations get their funding from? And, and where do you see funding streams coming coming from in the future for grassroots organizations like yours? Uh, great question. Um, if you're a USAID prime
2: <laughs> or partner, um, you, you, you're doing well. And the problem is you've been doing well probably for a long time. At the the smaller organizational level, funding sucks. There's no two ways about it. It's you're always on the hamster wheel Um, and um, USAID money, uh, large foundation money isn't really flowing to those smaller organizations. And so we are relying a lot on uh, bits and pieces from foundations and very much individual donors. So this is a bit different depending on the kind of organization that you're running and, um, how your, your mission and your message travels and is, gets communicated, but it is tough. I will tell you for most organizations that are operating with budgets under $5 million. And that seems like a lot, but it's not, Um, And with the exception of uh, a few organizations in our our community, like Water for People, IDE, Engineers Without Borders, um, most most of our organizations are are much smaller. Um, And we have uh, for-profits and non-profits and they all all kind of struggle with that. So um, it's a hamster wheel and um, uh, multilaterals, unilaterals, have talked for a long time about changing uh, funding structures, but it is, it's slow coming. Um, a lot of talk, not a lot of action.
0: Yeah, it's very competitive. Um, the, the money supply is tight. Um, I had a question. This might be something maybe Kate uh, could answer, but um, um, my student from Ms. Galen asked uh, regarding something Kate mentioned, the increasing role of private sector and in development initiatives. Is it possible to pursue development goals through a profit generating model? Do consultancies like John Snow, Chemonics, uh, create inefficiencies by generating revenue off of the nonprofit sector and international governmental organizations? Can private companies provide sustainable public goods and services? Both of you could probably address this, actually.
1: Yeah. Well, I I, don't know, I think that dirty secret is there, frankly, is not a huge difference between the for profits and NGOs in, in, in DC other than like.org,.com. Um, you know, I, I'm generalizing a bit there, but in how they operate, and, you know, I, Scott and I have worked for an NGO that, frankly, if you were there, you would feel like you were in a a, a for-profit court. Maybe it was just as chasing after the dollars. Um, so you know, and the argument for the for-profit model is being sustainable, right? So you have to come up with a sustainable business model so that you aren't you know so reliant on individual funds. So I, I don't really look at whether an organization is a for-profit or nonprofit as Kind of the measure of whether they're efficient or doing good work. I think it's really up to an organization and how the best business model they think to enable that. Um, so I think you have to go a little bit deeper and look at how they're operating and what their, um, you know, their mission and their values and how they work and to really evaluate that. You know, all of these groups though are part of this big system where yes, there are inefficiencies. You have twenty organizations that are bidding after this same project, so it costs a lot of money to put together these proposals and one will win. Um, but I think it's kind of the reality of, of the system right now. Um, so, but, you know, I, I often, sometimes some of the groups that we work with, I have to go look at their website and see if it's a .com or or.org to even remember if they're a for-profit or an NGO because um, they collaborate, they compete, they often work in similar ways. Um, and, but, you know, each is, each is its own beast, so I would kind of evaluate um, each organization by its own merits and not necessarily its, you know, tax status. But I'm curious to hear what Burke has to say on that.
2: I completely agree with you, Kate. Um, I I've been on a mission to rid organizations of this false distinction between for profit and nonprofit. It's an IRS categorization. It doesn't make any sense. Um, I we should be operating in in many of the same ways. Um, uh, If you're focused on having social impact, um, that's really kind of more of how I categorize the work that we're doing,
0: but I completely agree with you on those other points. That's great. Uh, We had another question. This is probably for either of you. How do you see US private sector engagement improving to aid USAID and other US government-led initiatives to bolster US-led economic development? Uh, Do either one of you want to take a stab at that?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, so there is a lot of collaboration with the private sector that's happening, um, even within USAID, and they have a whole office that focuses on that, um, looking to leverage um, private sector investment funding and skills. And, you know, there are some even NGOs that are exploring these kinds of partnerships. So, um, you know, private sector, a lot of them, when you talk about interest too, they have um, a long-term sustainable interest in investing in certain communities that can withstand changes in political power or, you know, whims of Congress. (laughs) So there, there can be some advantages to working with an organization that, you know, they're factories or their supply chain is based in the country. So it's important for them to have a healthy workforce or an educated workforce or um, a consumer base. Um, So it's about kind of aligning those interests. And um, there's a lot of work being done there. Um, There's a lot of skepticism around it too, about what the real interests are of these private sector companies. Um, And again, I would you know, evaluate each on its own merits. Um, but with talks about you know ESG and everything, it, it's really becoming for some corporations really ingrained into how they do business versus a tack on like CSR or foundation approach um, which really is shifting how those kind of companies partner and collaborate with a, say an NGO or a USAID, Um, and the kinds of career opportunities and and the kinds of people that are now getting involved in development work. Um, But there's a lot of interesting stuff there, Um, I think, as you're looking at different career opportunities. I wouldn't discount looking at what private sector organizations are doing that really is at that intersection with aid.
0: Uh, Kate, are those the kind of positions that you post on DevX, or is that where they have to search in the relevant organizations' websites?
1: Yeah, we have some of those, you know, there what's hard about those jobs is because some organization companies have them in different types of departments, right? Some it might be a CSR kind of role, some it might be more in their government affairs or external relations, some might have its own foundation, but some it might be built into their business operations. Maybe they have. You know, regional operations that focuses on the African continent. And pretty much anybody who's running those businesses is thinking about this as part of their portfolio. Um, so that's why it can be tricky to find some of these jobs, is that there isn't one common structure or way that it's done. Um, But if you look at things that are around sustainability, social impact, there are a lot of job titles you see like that out there that the corporates have. Um, But I think it's important to dig into how they approach it. And is it really embedded embedded into how they operate as a business or is it kind of a PR tack on? And I mean, not to judge either way, but it's just the the kind of work you will do will will be different in how it's framed within an organization.
0: Right on. Uh, There's a question about uh, the sustainable development goals. Um, You know, we had the millennium development goals that was, you know, governing pretty much, you know, most of the development decisions that were leading up to the year 2000. And then, you know, we had the sustainable development goals. Uh, To what extent are the SDGs actually being followed by NGOs and guiding program development around the world? When I worked for the World Health Organization,
2: I was involved in helping to develop the, the original uh, millennial development goals. I I have a a somewhat cynical view on the SDGs, um, but I will say um, it is a very helpful framework to mobilize high level support to do something. I mean, it's just the, I I don't know another way to put it. Um, There's metrics. Um, and to the extent that countries, organizations are taking those seriously, it, it, they do help. They do provide a framework there w- where there was no framework before. It provides an impetus for uh, funding streams, um, et, et cetera. So um, we use them. I think they're helpful. Um, uh, some are better than others. There's a lot of them. <laughs> um, and um, you know, in the end, I think it's it's a positive thing, and it's it, it's something that if you're working in global development, you should be paying attention to.
0: Right. Thanks for that, Burke. there's uh, there's been some other questions. Looks like uh, Marion was asking regarding the distribution of funds to more smaller organizations, Does't that require more management of by donor staff, which is very limited capacity? I mean, I can say from my experience that the effort that you're putting into a half million dollar grant can sometimes be as much as it is on a $10 million grant. Um, but I don't know. I mean, Kate, you've you've seen
1: Yeah, I don't know. There's thousands. a lot of debate within the development community of whether we should have more smaller NGOs or fewer bigger NGOs. And I, you know, there's arguments for both sides. Obviously, the arguments for a larger is, is the overhead, right? So why create all this overhead and replicate it across all these organizations and maybe have them doing all these programs that are actually trying to do the same thing rather than you know, aggregating them and there'll be some economies of scale. Um, of course, there's problems with having really large NGOs that hold on to all this power and then um, have really no incentive to ever themselves out of business too right which is something that some organizations say is their goal um so yeah there's i think there's some debate over that and and kind of which model and the importance and uh, you know I, one of the challenges of really making progress on you know this localization agenda of trying to get more funds directly to like local on the ground small organizations is that it is very hard for a small organization to absorb the level of funding that can come in. And sometimes that might even require, you know, having a line of credit because you have to wait six weeks for the government to pay you back and you have to be able to outlay all this cash and wait and hope that they're going to pay you in time. Um, and you know, so sometimes you need the support of a big organization that has access to reserves and cash and credit. Um, so they, you know there can be partnership between the two and large organizations helping to distribute that funding um, and helping with the management of uh, smaller organizations. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a tricky challenge. I, I'm sure Burke has thoughts on this. Be curious to hear his.
2: I'm the last to argue that there shouldn't be uh, some aggregation of organizations in the development sector. When you find out that. There is uh, an organization working on women's education to advance women ed- women's education uh, in one municipality, and right next door, there's another one doing the very same thing with a slightly different model. Um, you you begin to see what the the problem is. That said, um, you know, beyond a certain level, there is just a lack of access to funding and. My view is it is because of how donors are doing business and their application process. And uh, they make it virtually impossible for an organization of uh, a certain size to uh, have the stand up the capacity to actually apply for, for op- funding opportunities. You have to follow their application process, their reporting, et cetera, And especially for grassroots level organizations that are actually in the country at the local level doing the work, needing that level of funding, it's impossible for them to access the funding because of that that lack of capacity. And so it's not just having more people staffing donor organizations, it's the whole structure uh, well beyond the number of people who, who can take applications a lot of them won't even take unsolicited uh, applications or, or, or interest. So, um, lots of talk on this issue. Lots of talk uh, connected the de- de- decolonizing development issue. But um, again, you, you probably sense my frustration with this uh, on behalf of, of of a lot of organizations, um, especially outside the DC area, that just have a hard time uh, accessing funding.
1: Yeah, it's so, it Yeah, Mackenzie Scott is I'm trying to disrupt this model a bit of how she's doing her giving. It's just it unrestricted funds, picks an organization thinks things doing good work, let them do because you know a lot of the way that the giving is too is like you have to spend it on a certain thing in a specific way that is um, administratively really burdensome for a small organization. Um so philanthropy um has a role here and and can have the flexibility that maybe big government and international organizations, um, those institutions have a harder time changing or innovating or risk taking on their model.
0: This is really interesting. Um, I, we've answered a few different questions at once. People have been private messaging me and, um, and putting things into the chat. Uh, so there was a lot of, there's some questions about, you know, funding smaller orgs and things like that. I wanna shift a little bit uh, to sort of like the work life balance uh, of working in international development. You know, there's a question which international development orgs do you see as cultivating a healthy culture for staff to have work-life balance to prevent burnout and attrition how do you recommend students evaluate the culture of the org before applying and interviewing and i wanted to also bring that up in the st- from the standpoint that working in development uh can be there's a lot of miserable information and news that you're confronted by all the time like i get emails from relief web you know from Devex, obviously you know development aid Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, all these other orgs and and the, the Relief Web in particular, I'm getting sit reps from you know all the UN organizations and they're all trying to raise awareness about terrible things that are happening around the world. And so you're bombarded by just the worst human tragedy all the time because we're all focused on trying to alleviate the suffering and things like that. So um, you know, what do you have? What do you all what, what are your thoughts on on work life balance, you know, keeping yourself motivated while, you know, continually confronted by so much drama.
1: Yeah, I would say a pandemic was, uh, I think, a good awakening moment for a lot of organizations that, I mean, it was almost like a badge of honor before, like how much you had to travel and how much work is just like how committed you are to the cause and the mission. Um, And so people not feeling like they can say, whoa, hold on, I I need a moment. And obviously, like particularly doing like humanitarian type work that can be really mentally um, taxing. Um, so you're seeing a lot more organizations really recognizing that um, and investing more and talking more about it. Um, some are probably more advanced than others, but it is a conversation that is, um, you know, most organizations I'm aware of are, are certainly having and thinking about with their staff. And also is that, you know, this new return to work and what that looks like. And most people are still working from home or some kind of hybrid and. Um, how that can provide opportunities to give people the rest and the downtime that they need. Um, and, you know, I guess there's a, there was a lot of pause on travel for a lot of people that that probably contributed to it. Um, so, you know, it's an ongoing conversation that I think a lot of us are, are talking about and grappling with, but um, and recognizing that it does no one good to, to burn um, your staff or yourself out in order to be, continue doing this work.
2: Kate's right. It, it, it was a badge of honor to work your your twenty hour days. World Health Organization work culture is just uh, it was unhealthy. My my view was it wasn't working, at least in the Western Pacific Regional Office. And uh, people, you know, it's like if you stayed in the office, uh, got into the office at seven, and you left at, at eight o'clock, then you were doing good work. It didn't matter how effective uh, you were and that drove me absolutely insane and I ran my team a lot differently and that created a lot of consternation. Um, I don't know how it is now with with WHO but WHO is this huge organization and there's headquarters and there's regional offices that are quasi-independent and then there's country offices and they all kind of run differently. So maybe the, the, the takeaway and maybe directly addressing the, the question in the chat is I've uh, talked to people um, who are working in the offices where you're, you want to work, whether it's headquarters, regional offices or country offices, and don't assume that um, the, the headquarters culture at the top is the same at the, at a, at a more local level. Talk to people um, to the extent that you can and, and see what their experience is. Um, that, that's always the best thing, whether it's an uh, international development career or or something else. Yeah, i seen a, a recent trend
1: of people doing um, reference checks on their potential boss or supervisor, um, which I love and I would welcome somebody. That's great doing. I don't know how well that goes over with everyone, but maybe if it doesn't go over well, that's a red flag. But um. I love it.
0: A reverse reference check.
1: Yeah. it makes a lot of sense.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Oh, wow. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're close to the, we're close to time here and I want to give you both sort of, you know, sort of room for uh, any parting thoughts. I mean, are there any sort of last uh, like, like what, what's some advice that you would have given yourself 20 years ago? Um, Maybe Kate, you want to start?
1: Yeah. I mean, my advice often is, To really know your value and what it is you want to do, but be very open minded in how you do that. (laughs) So, I mean, when you're looking for a job, what is a challenge? And a lot of people email me, and and I love the attitude of like, I just want to, I'll do anything, which is a great attitude to have. But it's really hard for somebody to help guide you or give you advice, or for you to talk about, you know, why you are the right person for this organization or this job. So you really need to be able to communicate that clearly, but as I think Burke, Scott, myself, and I've all demonstrated, there's not a one linear career path and there's many different ways. And I think Burke said he just kept raising his hand and saying, yes, um, I think having that attitude because it, it is a competitive sector to break into. Um, but so you want to have that open-mindedness of trying new things and who knows what you might really love, but, um, but also have some focus that'll help you guide your search and particularly thinking about Leveraging your network and um, your existing relationships to try to to find potential opportunities.
0: That's great, Burke. What do you what What's your advice?
2: Uh, I always struggle with this one a lot because I do get this question. <laughs> I've always failed in my career path when I've been after the money or the promotion or the title, and that has failed for me. So whether you're first starting out, mid career, or at the end of your career. Uh, I would suggest that um, instead you say yes to fun, yes to doing something interesting, yes to something where you think you're going to have impact and not worry about the rest. Because even if it's a mistake, it'll yield another, an, another door will open to you. So that, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is uh, have a growth mindset. Uh, and that's a nice way of saying, be okay with feeling like an imposter, like you don't know what you're doing. Um, go into something that's that's going to challenge you, um, that's outside your comfort zone, because you're just going to grow in that job. If you if you take something where, you know, I, I know epidemiology, uh, like the back of my hand, I'm going to go be an epi. Epidemiologist for a a large multilateral. Good for you, and that might work for you. um, But I would recommend that you do something that's going to expand on that skill set. And then once you're in the job, focus on the job. Keep your head down. Do good work. Don't worry about what's going to come next because it will come if you're doing good work. So those are the three things that I I would say: say yes to fun, yes to change, have a growth mindset um, and, um, keep your head down.
0: I love that. I want to post that on my wall. <laughs> yes to fun. Yes to growth. Yeah, that's great. A ton of big ideas. Well, I, I want to thank, uh, Kate and Burke. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been really great. Uh, this has been, I think, a really productive conversation. Um, thanks to uh, my colleagues at, in the, on the NASPA Employer Relations Committee. Thanks so much also to my colleague, Colleen, for joining and, and sort of being like a back-end help here. Um, thanks so much, everyone, for, uh, for joining us.